0: Tonight we conclude a brief six-lesson series that we have simply been entitling What God Has Joined. And of course that phrase comes, as we mentioned this morning, from Matthew 19:6, where Jesus, in the context, obviously, of the marriage relationship, said, What God has joined together, let not man separate, as the New King James renders it. But we've expanded that thought to Look at some other areas where God has clearly joined Himself to certain things or individuals. And man has no right, in fact cannot, and be pleasing to God, separate God from those entities or individuals. First we began with the world in which we live, the universe. And while the atheists deny that God has joined Himself to this universe and tries to tell us that all of this just simply evolved from some big bang supposedly millions upon millions of years ago or some other such theory it is clear that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth as Moses recorded in Genesis 1 verse 1 and the evidences are overwhelming to prove that as we have looked at them in that lesson but then as we said it seems logical indeed that if God has created us, the pinnacle of his creation, along with everything else in this universe, that he would certainly tell us something about himself beyond what he has told us in creation. And not only about himself and his nature, but most importantly about his will for his creation. And we have that will because God has joined himself to his word. And this word, just as this world proves itself to be created, not evolved. This word proves itself to be inspired, not simply a compilation of the work of uninspired men who contrived and conspired, rather than being inspired, conspired together to put together a book that they purported to be from the God of heaven. Men could not have done that. It would have long since been rejected. All of that effort would have long since been detected as a fraud and been disproven. And don't think men have not tried to do just that. They have time and time again, and yet they have failed miserably. Why? Because God's word is God's word. God has joined himself to his word, but he has also joined himself to Jesus Christ. And in that word, we learn of the Christ and the fact that God and Christ are one. That is not one, not one individual. There are three individuals that comprise the Godhead, but they are one in nature, one in purpose, one in doctrine. I and my Father are one, Jesus said, as recorded in John 10 and verse 30. And yet there are those who tell us that, no, you don't have to come to God through Jesus Christ. You can come to God in so many ways. And yet Jesus affirmed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, John 14:6. And we believe that or should believe it because it is proved to be the case in this infallible word. But God has also joined Jesus Christ to salvation. There can be no salvation in any other, no other way to come to Him. That is no other way to be saved. And we've looked at that simple but beautiful and absolutely essential plan by which God, through Christ, brings about the salvation of all who will come in obedience. But that brings us to the church about which we spoke this morning. And it is abundantly clear, despite the contentions to the contrary, that it is not join the church of your choice or it is not join no church if you choose not to, it is the fact that God adds the saved to the church, Acts two forty-seven, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved and that's in reference to the first precious souls who were added to the kingdom when the gospel of the kingdom was preached for its first time on Pentecost day as recorded in Acts chapter 2, that church being indispensable, that church being indivisible as we talked about it in the other points about it this morning. Now tonight, having looked in five lessons at what God has joined, we want to look at what God has separated because it is important for us to establish that separation results from the process of joining. Seems rather ironic or paradoxical, but it is nonetheless true. In the process of being joined, we are automatically to be separated in certain ways and from certain things. And the first thing about which I'd like to speak tonight is something that ought to be exciting, reassuring, comforting. To everyone who has experienced this separation, what is it? God has separated the sinner from his sins. God has separated the sinner from his sins. We have, under the new covenant of Jesus Christ, absolute forgiveness, complete separation, something that no one in any previous dispensation of time enjoyed as we enjoy now. They could anticipate. They could anticipate the salvation based upon the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus was to make, but the blood of the bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean as Hebrews 9.14 points out could not take away sins. How much more can the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, the Hebrews writer asked in the latter part of that passage. We have that absolute forgiveness. We have that complete separation. Oh, it has been said over the years, and certainly there's no problem with saying that sins under the Mosaic Covenant were rolled forward. I prefer to look at it as a almost like a credit card type situation, however, under that covenant, where there was forgiveness that was granted, but only in anticipation of the ultimate price that had to be paid, as in a credit card that you can get something now, but you have got to pay for it later. And the only way those under those former covenants could be ultimately saved was in anticipation and the ultimate reality of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary and the shedding of his blood which flowed backward as it were to cleanse those faithful under those former dispensations and continues to flow in this the final dispensation of time to cleanse all, all who will ever come to him in obedience to the gospel. That is the comprehensiveness of the shedding of the blood of Christ that brings about absolute forgiveness, complete separation. You know, when you go back to Romans 6 and beginning in Romans 6 and verse 1, Paul reminds those Christians at Rome, and thus Christians for all time and Christians everywhere, of the separation that had occurred in their lives upon their obedience to the gospel what shall we say then he asked shall we continue in sin that grace may abound certainly not how shall we who what who died to sin live any longer in it or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father even so we should walk In newness of life and you know when we talk about the forgiveness of sins we talk about the forgetting of sins with God forgiveness is forgetting Hebrews 8 in verse 12 the promise from God through the inspired writer is for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness this is speaking of what we enjoy and appreciate in this new and final covenant sealed by the blood of Christ I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will what I will remember no more I will remember them no more and it is all made possible through Christ as we obey the gospel which Christ delivered and so as Paul reminds us in two Corinthians five seventeen, therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation old things have passed away behold all things have become new and then you notice the next two verses in that context verses 18 and 19 Paul writes now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us he's speaking of himself and the apostles etc the Ministry or the word of reconciliation. Paul is reminding us that God has separated the sinner from his sins through what? The all-sufficient, all-powerful word of reconciliation. There's the power of the word. Not the power of some direct operation of the Holy Spirit, as so many contend one must have today and does have, which one does not have because one does not need it, and it's not possible to have it because the all-sufficient word is capable of reconciling and does reconcile us to God. And to reconcile is to save. It is to bring man back to God. How? By removing his sins, by separating him from his sins. And he remembers them no more. When we have studied in the past the 17th chapter of John, which records to us the true Lord's Prayer, the prayer that He prayed not long before He was betrayed and ultimately crucified. In that prayer, Jesus emphasized the Word of God as the means of saving or sanctifying, the idea of being set apart, the one who will obey the Word. Listen to John seventeen eight for example. He's speaking here of the apostles in His prayer. And He says, For I have given to them, the apostles, the words which you have given me. Notice, I have given to the apostles. I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. I have given them your word, verse 14 of that chapter tells us. I have given them your word. There's the emphasis again on the word in in that verse. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. We should not be shocked that the world hates us if we have received and obeyed the Word and we are living in accordance with the Word. We should anticipate that the world hates us and really rejoice that we are hated for the Word. Isn't that what Peter and John did when they left the presence of the council there in the early chapters of the book of Acts? Rejoicing that they were what? that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And when this world manifests its hate toward us, we can rejoice in the sense that we are counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. In John 17, 17, in that verse in this great chapter, in that great prayer of Christ, he said, Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. At verse 20 of John 17 Jesus prayed I do not pray for these alone that is the Apostles we mentioned this this morning but also for those who will believe in me through what through their word and so at verse 8 I have given them the words at verse 14 I have given them your word at verse 20 I pray for those who will believe in me through their word look at the power of the word and the emphasis Of the word in the very prayer of Jesus not long before he left this earth there is power in that word and those who believe on Jesus must do so by obeying his word which has been delivered to us by the inspired writers of the New Testament the last will and testament of Jesus Christ and once a person hears that word and obeys it he is sanctified He is set apart, as Jesus said. That's what it means, to be set apart. The sinner has been separated from his old sins, and he's been sanctified and set apart for a holy use, and he is on a holy path from that time forward. And that leads to our second point and our final point. God has separated the sanctified from the world. God has separated the sanctified from the world and we need to appreciate that. In John 15:17 through 19, Jesus said this, these things I command you, that you love one another and then he gets back to this matter of the world and us if we're Christians. If the world hates you. You know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, can you be in better company than in the company of the Christ? You cannot be. And if the world hates you, then you are in good company. That's what he's saying, in effect, isn't it? If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Again, that's John 15, 17 through 19. And these words were spoken to the Lord's disciples, his apostles. They were to be set apart. They were to be different from those in the world. Now, John 17. Go back to that text with me again, that fervent prayer of Christ, and look at the larger context of verses 14 through 17. Verse 14 we noticed a moment ago, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now listen to this as he further expands that thought in his prayer. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil they are not of the world just as I am not of the world sanctify them by your truth we're back to verse 17 your word is truth. notice though I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one and I mentioned before our prayer should be don't take us out of the world but take the world out of us don't take us out of the world but please help us keep the world out of us and that's the thing we're not to go off and live in some monastery somewhere somewhere as many have mistakenly thought we are to be in this world and we are to be an influence for good in this world and that in the world in which we live today is a very challenging thing but think about in Roman times in the times of the Roman Empire at the height of its power that was a tough time to be in the world too a very tough time in fact if we review history we will likely not find a time in which it was not tough to be the right kind of influence in the world as a Christian since Christianity came on the scene but we have what we need to be able to meet that challenge but how is it that we are to be separate from the world Jesus answers it for us in his prayer Or his apostles in John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word of God provides us with all we need to remain sanctified, become purer in heart every day. That's a beautiful hymn, isn't it? Purer in heart, O God, help me to be. That truly should be our prayer and our determination. To be pure in heart every day that we live. Set apart from the ways of the world while we journey in this world toward our heavenly home. Notice 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. You're familiar with the text, I'm sure. Therefore, Peter says, laying aside, laying aside most malice. No. Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. You see how many times the word all is in there? All malice, all deceit, all evil speaking. And then he says as newborn babes, Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now here's a key passage. That is a key passage that tells us first of all to lay aside the old ways of sin. We've been separated from our sins by the blood of Christ if we have come into contact with that blood by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing Christ and being buried in baptism where that blood is reached. Then we've been separated, now we're sanctified and it is time to rise from that watery grave and set our goal to become purer in heart every day and to grow. To grow in the Christian graces it reminds us Peter's words do that we're babies when we become Christians but we don't stay babies and we're to desire the spiritual milk in order to grow to spiritual maturity and to partake of that solid food about which the Hebrews writer later speaks in Hebrews 5 12 through 14 as he chastises those Hebrew Christians and saying to them the time has come when you ought to be teaching others and instead you have someone who needs to teach you the very first principles of the oracles of God and you become such as have need of milk and not of solid food. And finally, verse 3 of 1 Peter 2 reminds us of our motivation for desiring the word, the word that will produce the growth in us. What is our motivation? If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. That's not a phrase that we need to pass over lightly in that passage. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, tell me that someone who has come up out of the watery grave of baptism, rejoicing that his or her sins have been not only forgiven, but completely forgotten by the God of heaven, does not have ample motivation for understanding the graciousness of God and for reacting to that graciousness and that love. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, then desire this and grow by it. The love of God is forgiving our sins. The love of God has forgiven our sins and the love of God in forgiving our sins has transformed us from being among the guilty to being among the grateful who have tasted that the Lord is gracious and we're grateful for that graciousness. And that gratitude and love for the one who first loved us prompts us, as we have so often said, to lovingly keep His commandments. Some time ago, we did a series on the New Testament Christian. It was based on the theme of one of the years of the Memphis School of Preaching lectureship. The New Testament Christian does this or this or this. And as a part of that series, we looked at the New Testament Christian never stops growing. And we spent time with various areas in which the Christian never stops growing. And we used First Peter to do that. Now, review those with me just in very cursory fashion, but simply to remind us of what we studied some time ago, a couple of years ago, maybe not by now, in more detail. If we look at First Peter and we just simply go through the book and see some of these things. We look at first Peter chapter one and verse two, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. And that's a reminder that we're to grow in grace. And doesn't Peter tell us to do that very thing in Second Peter three eighteen? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in favor with God as Jesus. Luke two fifty-two increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And also peace is there. We're to grow in peace. Shouldn't we have greater peace, peace, perfect peace in this old world of sin? The blood of Jesus whispers peace within. That peace is intensified the longer we feed upon this. If we don't feed upon this, That peace will not grow, and it won't be intensified. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, Paul writes, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You look at the third verse of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. There's hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope is desire coupled with expectation. And our hope should be greater and more intense the closer we get to the realization of that hope if we're feeding as we should. Romans eight twenty four, Paul writes, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for what he sees? You don't still hope for what you have. But our hope should be so intense and growing stronger every day the more we feed upon this word. And then we drop down to verse 5 of the first chapter of first Peter, and we see faith. Who are kept by the power of God through faith. We're to grow in faith. That's exactly what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in Second Thessalonians 1 and verse 3. When he wrote, we're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. Listen to it. Because your faith grows exceedingly. Your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. Faith that grows exceedingly cannot grow exceedingly unless it's feeding upon the Word of God. And then joy. Verse 8 of chapter 1 speaks of joy. And what does Paul have to write about it in Philippians 3 and verse 1 and Philippians 4 and verse 4? Where he writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. That's verse um, 1 of chapter 3. And then Philippians 4 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, Rejoice. Our joy should become greater the longer we have lived the Christian life if we've applied ourselves to living the Christian life. Now, what about holiness? Can we grow in holiness? Pure or in heart, O oh God, help me to be. We shouldn't sing that if we don't think we can grow in holiness because that's what that song is all about, and it's biblical. But in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. But as he who called you is holy, that's verse 15, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And then when we look at chapter 1 and verse 17 of 1 Peter, we are to grow in fear. We're to grow in fear. Listen to 1 Peter 1.17, and it, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here in fear. Conduct the time of your sojourning here in fear? Live in fear? Yes, the right kind of fear, reverential fear, respect and awe for the God of heaven. Reminiscent of what Peter would later write in 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you a reason of the hope that is within you, yet with meekness and what? Fear, same kind of fear, respect and reverence and of course we could not leave out love in which we are to grow and when you look at chapter 1 of 1 Peter at verse 22 since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren love one another fervently with a pure heart compare that with what Paul wrote in first Thessalonians three twelve, when he said and may the Lord make you Increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. Increase and abound in love. Don't you ever level off in your love. You keep on increasing and abounding. And you will, you will if you're feeding upon the all-powerful, all-sufficient Word of God. What about good works? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. How important it is for us to be full of good works. Remember Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then when we look at first Peter 2 and verse 20 we are reminded of how important it is for us to grow in patience for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently but when you do good and suffer for it if you take it patiently this is commendable before God patience steadfastness Bearing up under trial, that's the idea of biblical patience. James said this about it, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. And what about knowledge? Oh, how could we leave out knowledge? First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, a verse we've already alluded to. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you, ask you a reason of the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear. You can't answer if you don't have the knowledge. Therefore, that passage implies we must be growing in knowledge. Are you growing in knowledge? Am I growing in knowledge? Again, 2 Peter three eighteen, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And finally, there's that all important, foundational characteristic of humility. And in First Peter, chapter five, and verse five, Peter writes, "Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another." And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in good time. Don't exalt yourself. Humble yourself and let him exalt you. And, as I've mentioned before, you don't wear humility as a ring on your finger. You are clothed with it. You are consumed by it. And pride is so often and clearly condemned in Scripture from Old Testament to New while humility is enjoined upon us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, remember Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when you know we come to the final verses of this epistle, First Peter, we, we come back to where we began, grace and peace. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, the latter part of the verse. And then at verse 10, But may the God of all grace, who called us to eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And then peace, verse 14. Last verse of the epistle. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The only way to receive God's grace... to enjoy God's peace is by a faith that is obedient to the word of Christ and that word when obeyed from the heart will separate the sinner from his sins sanctify him or set him apart from the world and as he continues to feed upon the word grow in all the areas of the Christian life what a beautiful life he will exhibit to all those around him, one characterized by peace, perfect peace in Jesus Christ. There are certain things God has joined, but thanks be to God, there are certain things he has separated. The sinner from his sins and the sanctified from the world. Living in it, but not of it. Where are you tonight? If you're not in Christ, you're still in the world. There are only two places to be. And if you're still in that world, come out of it in obedience to the gospel. Obey that gospel as we've outlined it by hearing it, as you've heard it. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Repent of your sins, confess him, and then be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you've done those things but know that the world has gotten into you when it shouldn't have and that you have not only been in the world but you've let the world be in you, come out again and come home to your first love and continue to live in this challenging world but not of it and live with a prayer on your lips fervently and a life that comports with that prayer Lord don't take me out of the world but please take the world out of me for all those who need no response continue to live by that prayer and with that determination in the world and being a powerful influence for good while keeping the world out of you because your soul is at stake. As we stand to sing,